This episode of I Save That Podcast is brought to you by 2020 AVA Enterprise Partner, Teleflex. Teleflex is a global leader focused on reducing vascular-related complications through world-class solutions designed to equally benefit clinicians and patients. Their goal is to provide intuitive products and consultative programs that improve procedural efficiencies, patient outcomes, and healthcare economic value to advance care in vascular access. For more information, visit www.teleflex.com. Greetings. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the I Save That Podcast. This installment of the show revolves completely around the COVID-19 global pandemic, focusing on how the virus is impacting healthcare institutions across the United States and the entire world. I'm Eric Seger, Director of Communications for the Association for Vascular Access, and I'm joined as always by Judy Thompson, AVA Director of Clinical Education. Hi, Judy. How are you doing? I'm good, Eric. How about you? Great. Staying busy, as I'm sure everyone else on our wonderful panel is as well. Um, In this episode of the podcast, we're going to welcome that panel in a few seconds here. They're all vascular access clinicians from across the country who have taken valuable time out of what I'm sure is extremely busy schedules to chat with us about the virus and how it's changed their practice and and how they're, you know, doing things differently within their healthcare institutions um, in different states and metropolitan areas. So let's go ahead and get to it and welcome our panel hailing from St. Vincent's in Birmingham, Alabama. We welcome vascular access specialists Regina Hines and Christy Butler and from Phoenix, Arizona, respiratory therapist Keegan Mahoney. Connie Jurgenti is here from the Chicago area. And finally, welcome uh, Tanya Stevens, who is the current secretary on the 2020 AVA Board of Directors from our nation cap- nation's capital, Washington, D.C. I want to thank all of you again for taking time out of your busy, busy lives to join us for this special episode of the I Save That podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We're so happy to have you guys here. So this will be fun today. Let's, let's get right into it because we have a lot to talk about. And um, each of you have a different perspective. So super excited about this. Let's talk about the shortage of PPE because that's really been in the news all across the country about mask and proper attire. So let's start with you, Regina. How has the shortage of PPE impacted your team in their daily tasks? Well, we started off with in the South with a, a slower start to the influx, I would say, than some of the larger cities. However, it has made a difference with us recently with our cohort units because we have had to reuse masks. Um, N95s we've had to use once and then um, put them in a bag for cleaning once the facility learned how to do that appropriately. So it's been a change for us to stop and think about the fact that we're coming out of a room, we've just used a mask and how to properly hand that to somebody, not touch the front of it, et cetera. So we can't just say, okay, we have a line and we're ready to go. We have to think about every step of the way. Um, do we have our mask? Do we have our goggles? Do we have our face shield? All those things have to be considered. So it's just more time consuming. And Christy, I know you work with, with Regina out there in Alabama. I was happy. I was very excited to be out there to to film you guys a while back. So how has it impacted you in your life and your work? Uh, I think it's just been a learning curve just going through it. We have tried before we knew everything was happening to kind of try to stock up our stash of masks and everything and just to make sure that we would be able to keep those for as long as we could as opposed to changing a mask with every patient's room that we go in, we keep the same mask all day long, um, which has been a huge task to try to, or I guess a new habit to get into. As far as impacting life, you know, I mean, it's just, you have to be mindful also when you go home that not just for your PPE here, but that I personally change clothes before I leave here. So I don't take anything home with me. Good point. So that actually leads me into another question. Connie, I think I'm going to tap you on this one. How, what challenges have you had at home after COVID shift? So Mm -hmm. what about a COVID shift, a a shift in your hospital? 
Yeah. Um, and for those of you that know my husband, you'll understand this. And for those that you don't, I hope you can just laugh. Um, you know, um, he was incredibly afraid for me to go to the hospital. And as most of you know, I am a full-time educator for a manufacturer. And then I work in the hospital part-time. The first day um, that I went to the hospital during all of this, we, um, we, we had, I think, like 13 um, PUIs, patients under investigation. And then um, it wasn't bad. They were in a small section of the hospital. It was pretty contained. I didn't have any patients at that time. So not so worried. But then on the 16th, we had gotten our first positive in the county. And then on March 27th, when I was back, this is when that war zone hit. And I have to say, I was afraid. And it, it really was scary. And I know my husband kept, you know, he was afraid too. He's like, make sure, you know, you know, he's a layman. <laughs> he's an essential worker too. But he's like, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? He was starting to drive me crazy. And I snapped a picture of myself and all the gear to, to send to him. I'm like, okay, yes, this is what I look like. Please, I'm, I'm doing everything we can. I did put some patients in the ICU, some lines in patients in the ICU. And when I walked on that unit, it was so, it was that war zone. And I'm so I'm getting off a little bit on topic, but it kind of builds the story. But it was that war zone. My pulmonary physician, he looked helpless. The IV tubings were in the hallway. This was it. I was putting patients in, putting lines in these patients. When I got home, he heard the garage door open, literally walked into the garage door with a towel. <laughs> I had to disrobe in the garage. He had gloves on. He he knows just enough to um, be safe. He handed me the towel, picked up my clothes. They went into the washing machine. And usually very, you know, we hug each other when we get home. But no, it was like straight to the shower. Um, my shoes were sprayed. They were left in the garage. Um, it, it it was scary. But and at first we didn't know, you know, should we hug each other? Should we kiss each other? Because you were just in all of that. But I think we took all the precautions necessary to, you know, decontam. Um, I, I think, like when you say you take all your, you know, you change your scrubs at the hospital, um, I think hospitals should provide the scrubs there and be laundered there. You know, and I think like we'll use Matt because he was supposed to be on this call. He's got little kids at home. How do you wear those shoes? How do you wear those scrubs back home and and feel safe as a nurse? Those were just, I don't know, some of my, our, our precautionary measures, uh, and it still takes place, um, you know, just undressing immediately, leaving the shoes in the garage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Keegan and um, the rest of that, well, Keegan, let's talk. Have you had any of those same struggles about people at um, home afraid of you? Oh, almost definitely. Uh, we had that discussion early. You know, we have the benefit here that our peak isn't supposed to be uh, for, you know, the first two weeks of May. Um, we've, I've still seen, you know, I've, I've placed well, lots of lines on patients. We, we still have our positives, but we're still climbing per se. Um, mm -hmm. So we had those talks early on, and I, I mean, basically, I follow the same protocol. I come home, strip in the garage, uh, <laughs> go straight to the shower, and, you know, clothes and shoes, you know, get sprayed and cleaned right away. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, definitely the emotional toll and the, the fear of the unknown, knowing that this virus, you know, we you could be a carrier and, and not even know, uh, puts strain mm -hmm. uh, definitely on the home life. Definitely, definitely. I had a a friend have to pick up another friend at the hospital because her her car broke down, and the hospital worker said, "Thank you so much for the ride. Do you want me to strip before I get in your car?" <laughs> so times are changing a little bit, a little bit. Let's change um, gears a little bit here and talk about the difference in practices that you're seeing. So Tanya, I haven't tapped on you yet. So best practice versus COVID practice. What have you seen? And no judgment. So um, we have changed things at uh, my hospital. Now we're a specialty hospital. So uh, our sister hospital is getting the brunt of this. 
more than us. And our peak is anywhere from now and June 1st, depending upon who you speak to. But I will tell you, we're seeing a huge influx at our hospital. And the demand for vascular is really driving high right now. So we have dedicated um, a less than ideal ultrasound machine. It's one of the handheld ones. So when you're accustomed to the higher end, more clear, visible machines, it is a change. Uh, we work with five procedural hospitalists, and they have taken the brunt of the COVID patients right now for our peripheral IVs, but when it comes to our central lines, we are still in the need. We've stopped using our vascular placement system, which has been really hard for a lot of us, not just uh, for the best practice for the patient, but it's like anything else. I mean, how many of us really want to place a PIC line or peripheral line without ultrasound? We get kind of addicted to these machines and we're very confident in what we do and we can go in there very comfortable. And it's funny when you walk out of a room and you have no idea where your pick is, you can still ultrasound the next, make sure it's not up there, but you really have to think back to what we yeah. did before. And it's because we don't have the proper coverage for our machines. We tried it in the beginning, makeshifting all these drapes, um, but our system requires EKG leads on the patient as well as our ultrasound probes and we have to be able to touch our screen because um, we have lost our remote control because we've never used it. We've never needed it. Even in our contaminations rooms, we've always had two people and been able to safely do our procedure and maintain sterility as well as the safety. And now it's been really interesting to see how many people are complaining about discomfort in their hands because we are seeing how much we never truly cleaned our hands as much as we should. So I think in a positive light, that's, that's actually been moving us towards best practice. And all reality is we are cleaning our hands better. We're going back to soap and water after procedures versus just the hand gel to try and give our hands a break from all that alcohol. We're using gloves a little bit better than I think we did before. I think many times we walked in the room and didn't throw them on right away. And now we're being a lot more meticulous. So I think the positive note is that we are doing better with hand hygiene. Um, we're being more attentive to what ifs. And we're being less lackadaisical, even touching our patients in a gentle way with no gloves. We are maintaining gloves. Obviously, we're all wearing masks at all time, and we're getting creative with those masks to try and keep it a little jovial at work. Many of us are making masks to try and make it easier for others, but I think everyone is learning how hard and how exhausting it is to wear a mask every day. And I think even the public is learning that now, that you really breathe in your own air is not a fun thing. And uh, we kind of have to, I think the news would do a little bit more publication that when you get a headache, you need to open that mask up and you need to breathe some fresh air because that's a lot of CO2 going back into the body. <laughs> True. Right. Good point. Yeah. Tanya, you, may, you mentioned just a second ago that um, one, you've changed practice from using um, your tip navigation. And yeah, that that's terrible when you can't use it. But I know Connie had, um, we talked a little bit earlier to this and Connie uses the same system as you, but um, has been able to find a something to be able to cover it. And I think part of the the wonderfulness about these um, these calls and and these shows is that we can share some jury rigging um maybe not necessarily best practice but best practice for today. Connie, you want to share what you've done for that? Yeah, um what we we had gone down to interventional radiology. Um we have good relationships there. And, um, you know, because they've got covers for everything, we're like, you've got to have something. And they had a big roll, it, you know, I can't say how many feet it is, maybe three or four feet. And it is just this huge plastic bag. It's a high, you know, you can see through it. So you can still touch the screen. Um, the part that made me nervous and, you know, don't be, be gentle on me, but we did tear a little hole so we can poke the, um, the ultrasound probe through so then we can put the probe cover on it and then get that over to the patient um, and, and that that seems to work well for us um, and that way we could still 
get our um, our confirmation that the tip was in, in the right place. And you're right, though, it is a little weird to go back to maybe not using ultrasound, but that's how, or not ultrasound, um, tip confirmation. That was how, you know, I learned to place them. Um, so it is definitely a little weird feeling to walk out of a room and not know where your tip is, um, for sure. I would hate to, to go back to that. It delays care, of course, but in this situation, we have to do, you know, whatever is best at the time for that patient. I don't know if it's the same thing, but another colleague of ours um, is using something called polytubing and it's like a big clear bag. So mm -hmm. you know, there, there's tips and tricks out there that I think the best thing we can do is share them right now to make everybody's life easier. And the other thing Tanya mentioned was they're used to two people versus one person. And I know Keegan, we talked about that a little earlier. Can you talk to me or talk to our audience about that practice for you? What's changed for you on the COVID? Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a big change. Um, as I said, we really, you know, we've we've had the luxury, I guess, of a of a, a slower hit uh, at my hospital, meaning that when we are going to intubate, we have two negative pressure rooms. Uh, so we, we have that luxury where we've been able to just kind of coordinate back and forth. Um, the struggle from a vascular access standpoint is currently what we're doing is we'll go in uh, after intubation uh, and uh, we wait about 35 minutes. So we prep bags, basically. Um, so we put everything that we would need. Most of our patients are getting, anybody that's intubated is getting a central line and A line, which we would place. Um, so we prep two bags um, with uh, the materials that we need, and then uh, we have to get all our PPE on. So we get our PPE on, which has been a kind of a learning curve as far as how many pairs of gloves do I need to put over these gloves and how many gowns do I have on for the different procedures. And then you enter the room by yourself, uh, which is a huge change for us, uh, being that we would always have two people in. Um, so, for instance, two days ago, I had one of those moments uh, that, uh, you know, is the proverbial, you know, kind of crap your pants moment where uh, I'm in, I'm on my central line and uh, my wire falls off the bed. Oh, no. So now it's a matter of, you know, I have on uh, a N95, a face shield, I have one, three gowns on and we communicate by vocera. Um, which I don't know if everybody knows, but it's a little uh, device hangs on your scrubs, which now is behind three gowns and, and N95, <laughs> and I'm trying to press this and say, hey, guys, can somebody, you know, slide me a wire under the door? And the vocera isn't, uh, you know, receiving my calls and things, so I'm standing there with a needle in somebody's neck with my thumb over the back end of the needle and trying to flag people down, you know, to get them to come into the room. Um, so the struggle's real um, in that instance when you don't have your, your, you know, someone else in the room that you trust and know uh, that uh, is going to have your back during those times. So it's, it's, it's definitely difficult to uh, you know, limit exposure from a healthcare perspective and, and still deliver, you know, care like we're used to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Keegan, if, if, um, if I could add, Judy, you know, we unfortunately do not have the luxury to work in pairs. So we are a solo team. We go into the room by ourselves. Um, usually with pick placement, the nurses do not stay in the room. Um, but when we do central lines, someone is in the room. Um, so I can't even fathom um, putting a central line, CVC, IJ, uh, subclavian, axillary, subclavian, um, in by myself. And it, that is just, yeah, I that would be very, very scary. And I can't even and imagine this. And <laughs> dropping your wire. And dropping. <laughs> and dropping your wire and I mean, trying to talk to you. Oh, my gosh. Disc. You know, you can always put that on later, but you need a wire. Yeah, you lose you lose such so much dexterity with with gloves uh, with the more gloves you put on. But we found that you know we have to to doff 
you know, our sterile gown in the room. Um, So we have to have gowns on underneath and gloves underneath so that we don't expose. So it, you know, that's kind of that crazy learning curve for how much PPE do I have to have on underneath the sterile, you know, uh, PPE that we're using to protect the patient too. It's, it's definitely a, a different time. And you say you're going in and you're you're dropping a central line, sometimes an HD, and then an A line. So that could put you in that room for quite a while, Keegan. Oh man, I have never sweat so much in the patient's <laughs> room. Uh, I'm a big hairy guy. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, I always have a beard. I had to shave my beard. Um, you know, rebreathing your air. Uh, you know, it can be an hour and a half that you're in the room. Um, Lots of times we do have the bedside nurse in the room with us, um, but if the bedside nurse has been in there through the intubation um, and then, you know, a couple of our lines, it's at that time usually that they step out because they've been in the room for like two hours and they just need to take a breath or something. Um, so there's, it's, it's not the entire time that we're doing all these procedures that we're alone. It just always seems to be, you know, when we're going to drop something that we're alone. How about to the panel? Um, have you been dealing with the prone patient? And what have you done if you have? We've been lucky enough um, to uh, be very proactive. Like Keegan was saying, as soon as they're intubated, then you get the call um, for the for the central line. So I have not placed any lines in prone. How about you, Regina? Have you guys in Alabama hit that at all? Uh, not yet. We're more in line, I think, with Keegan, maybe in that our um, influx is a little behind some of the other cities. So we have not seen that either. We do, as far as a practice change, though, we have learned, like Keegan said, that we have to think about what we're taking in the room. And we kind of looked at it a little bit differently because you want to take maybe that extra art line or just a catheter instead of a whole kit, because if you take too much in the room, there's certainly items that you don't want to bring back out. So that has to be a balance, but we have not yet had to place a line in a prone patient. How about anybody else? Yeah, we, we currently have one patient prone, but again, we've, uh, you know, we had all the lines placed. Um, it is definitely uh, very interesting to see, you know, uh, a patient that's prone with that huge bed in a CRT machine, and then all the tubing from that coming from outside the prone bed and the machine outside the room, outside the door. It's definitely a a, a, a practice that I I have never seen before. I've talked to um, some clinicians that have placed um, picks in the upper arm um, in prone. And they've used their tip confirmation technology and actually used it successfully. Um, I've heard that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, you know, I love that innovation though. And um, trying to think outside the box, it's, it's pretty inspiring. And Tanya, how about you? So I've actually had to place one, but it was not a COVID patient. This was years ago. I had a patient who could only live on uh, their belly. And so I, at that time, um, did not know what I know now. And we just raised the bed up and, and they put a mat on the floor and I kneeled down and got, you know, MacGyvered and creative. And we won't talk about my sterile technique at that time. Um, but I've had to do it before and it, it, it actually wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And of course, after the fact, I had great ideas of what I should have done. So at my hospital, we have an implementation plan if it needs to happen but we have gotten a little aggressive with those patients that are higher risk to get their lines in earlier. And a lot of our patients are still able to have peripherals. So if it's a transplant patient, because we do a ton of ton of transplant, we throw a central in early. If it's not, then we're trying to survive and have done okay um, with them. I will tell you our sister hospital in DC has seen more of this. Um, part of the problem at my current facility is there's only two of us who have ever done lines by ourselves. Everybody else has always had a second person. So that's a huge learning curve that we can't get around. Um, but I know other hospitals around us, the more experienced nurses that have done them by themselves in the years where we didn't have two people are being successful. Um, and it, there's some interesting techniques with turning the arm for access and turning it back, but most of them have required two people in the room. 
to hold the position of the arm for an easier access. And uh, they're just learning to raise the bed a little bit higher to save your back <laughs> um, yeah. to, to get through. Uh, you know, and obviously, if possible, that cephalic vein can sometimes be a little bit easier to access in that position. Before we continue with Season 3, Episode 3 of the I Save That Podcast, COVID-19 Pandemic Edition, a quick word from our episode sponsor, Teleflex. For additional clinical education opportunities, register today at Teleflex Academy. Build your skills with programs by and for clinicians. Many programs offer education contact hours. Learn at your own pace with on-demand webinar and e-learning content. Visit Teleflex Academy at www.teleflex-academy.com. We, we were speaking prior to this, and Connie, you really mentioned something that hit home because I think many of us that aren't on the front line are seeing some things that are posted and thinking, my goodness, why would you do that? And you even mentioned that it's really, it's hard because you guys on the front line are doing things you never would have done possibly a month ago. And people are judging this, but they don't live a day in your shoes. So I'd like you to talk to that. Yeah, that was um, one of the frustrating things for me, um, you know, back, geez, how long have we been doing this now? I want to say early March, um, you know, when we see posts and initially, you know, um, I think it was in Washington, they were hit and there, you know, we started seeing these pictures of IV pumps outside the room. And of course, you know, the vascular access folks, um, some of them were being very hypercritical. You know, this is, you know, below the standard of care and, you know, we, we shouldn't be doing this. No one's assessing the sites. Like we all understand that, but the reality of this current situation um, is that, and, you know, and I thought, well, I try not to judge people if it's working for them um, in the current situation. And I wasn't sure that we would see it. And then we did see it. We saw it at, at my hospital. And I think it's difficult when you are on the front lines and people are critical of what you're doing, who've been removed from it. Um, because these are, you know, very unprecedented times where we have to resort to some of this. None of us on this call or any nurse on the front line would want to compromise a patient's care or put them at risk. But, you know, you know, you've heard, we've heard the, ta- the term, you know, they're fighting a war. I mean, that's, that's how you, you kind of feel when this really hits your unit um, because people don't know what to do. Um, what's good is that we've had hospitals on the coast, you know, seeing this sooner so some of us are going to, we are getting this information early to kind of maybe, um, you know, think and plan ahead. But the reality of um, having pumps in the hall is, is real. Um, and if it saves masks and gowns when you have to do the patient care, because I think um, and I, we do, there is silver linings, right? Like there are some positive things that can come out of this. And um, I hope we see a lot of them and maybe some of them are, you know, better pump settings so they're not always alarming or ways to know when an IV, um, you know, is beginning to infiltrate. And some of these things are on the market, but um, we can't be too harsh in the judgment of people who are on the front lines doing the absolute best they can with what they have. Oh, I agree. In fact, uh, Gina and I were talking about over a week ago, and we were talking about a different topic entirely. And she goes, don't judge me. Don't judge me because mm-hmm. I'm having to deal with this. So. Christy, Regina, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that as well. Well, I think for me, being an old ICU nurse, I understand the means of you do what you can at the time while you're doing it to take the best care of the patient. And when we first saw the pumps outside the rooms with the lines and the lines on the floor, as a vascular nurse, I'm like, oh my gosh, that cannot be doing that. (laughs) But our nurses have been really good about using the Foley stat locks and they put them on the doors and then on a table or either on the computer, like because our computers are on the wall and they've got the tubings up off the floor. So they've been really, really good about keeping that tubing off the floor to help ease our minds. <laughs> and fortunately, fortunately, most of our patients that the in the ICUs, they do all have lines in. 
so we're not dealing with certain drips going through a peripheral. We know they're going through a central line. So that helps ease that just a little bit too. Well, I hope we see some positives on this, right? Because before COVID-19, when we had IV tubing on the floor, no one even batted at it, really. Um, <laughs> but now, now that it's stretched all the way across the floor and it's so obvious, so I hope that's one of the positives that we see is that there should never be tubing on the floor. It shouldn't be coiled on the floor, you know, when the patient's in a bed who's not positive for anything. But so I hope we see some better new ideas maybe for IV tubing so it's not on the floor. I think we will in many regards. Like Tanya mentioned, hand hygiene is improved dramatically and right. tubing off the floor, that's another plus. So I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of lessons learned that we may go back to what we've always considered best practice. And then some things are gonna change a little bit with that as well. I think one thing I has really been kind of jumbling in my brain the last couple of days is we always write best practice in regard to best for the patient as well it should be. But right now we also have to consider that practitioner as in our, our best COVID practice. So having the pump outside the door, we can all agree that generally we wouldn't do that because we can't really assess the site, but we have to take care of the practitioner at the same time as we take care of the patient. So I think there's going to be a little bit more consideration on, or, or maybe so I'm- Judy, I'd like, to, I'd like to add that, you know, I think these points that everybody are making um, and people saying, please don't judge me is, is, is um, an interesting comment. My plea to everyone is to, if you are worried about somebody judging you, send your idea to somebody else to put out there. Because if it wasn't for those brave souls to get online and say, hey, this is what we're doing, we wouldn't mm -hmm. have improved to where we are now. And we, ha we, we don't even know how many lives we have saved by some of this mm -hmm. poor practice. And we say poor practice because it's not a common practice. We don't understand it. We don't know the risk factors, but let's face it, we still don't understand COVID and we're still learning so much. So if people don't put these quote unquote bad ideas out there, we can't grow from them. And we can't get ideas off of how to improve that quote unquote bad idea. So I plead with everybody out there listening, if you have an idea that you think might be judged, send it to me for God's sake, I'll put it out there. <laughs> I have my shoulders, I don't care. Even if I don't agree with it, I'll put it out there to get somebody's idea and understanding because somebody will take that thought and will grow with it. We have so many innovators in this world. I am not that innovator, but I have no problems motivating you. I think that's a great point, Tanya. And I think anybody on this call would also carry that, that uh, torch for you. I was gonna say, Tanya, that was very, it was actually inspirational. It gave me goosebumps. And I think we come from this position of, okay, don't judge. And we get that because we have this professional group on Facebook where we go. And it, sometimes it's like sharks in the water, right? Like we're going to pick all this apart. But I love that, you know, you have the broad shoulders and, you know, because sometimes maybe, like you said, you're willing to inspire, you hear an idea and then you share it with somebody else and then they see it with fresh eyes. You know, we can't always just be staring at our standards book and only go verbatim. Sometimes we do. We have to think outside the box. And if somebody's willing to speak up, guess what? That next standard might change to include the idea that someone just shared because they weren't afraid. So, yeah, I, that just gave me goosebumps. Thank you. <laughs> Something people try out of desperation because they don't have another way to do it right now might just be the way that we practice down the road, too. So great point, Tanya. So all you guys all are leaders in vascular access. They're your leaders in your field. So how can how can other vascular access clinicians step up and be leaders in, during this crisis? So let's go right down the line. Regina, Christy, what are your thoughts on that? I think that if you're in a situation where you're on a team, as Keegan has mentioned, and you have a partner, that you can learn from that because we have learned to, we've worked together for so long that even though our partner, if you will, is outside the door, we can just look at their eyes pretty much and know what they need. So if you're getting there because your facility has not seen the crisis yet, reach out to some of your coworkers and see what they have done to 
help each other uh, step up or to even to help another discipline insert a line. Just the process of knowing what to do next can be very helpful. The process of what is the vascular access team going through right now? How can I help them or how can I help my partner? Or like I said, that other discipline would be very beneficial because it's not a normal day in today's world. You have to kind of know what they're going through and have maybe talked to someone and that will lead to them being better able to help you or someone else. Thanks. Christy, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think that it's easy for me to go in the room sometimes to do the line because if I'm in there by myself and the patient needs something else, let's say they need to be suctioned or something needs to be done with their ventilator or something like that with my ICU experience that I'm able to help that nurse do what needs to be done to keep somebody else from having to go in the room. Connie, um, as far as leadership, how, how can you help others in this crisis? I think my, my biggest message is that during crisis, and I hope we don't see anything like this anytime soon again, um, but you know, we need to be open-minded and we can't be judgmental. Um, and there's times when it does take that innovation, you know, who would think about putting their tip confirmation technology on someone's back? I mean, I just, I loved that that nurse was willing to try something new um, and different in, in, in this time. So I think open-minded and be innovative. Thank you. That's a good point. Tanya, you're up. Leadership. So I think with leadership, it's an imperative that we watch how we say things, but I think it is more imperative that we ask others. So when you get into a situation where we don't know, you have to have your people you reach out to. And uh, as, as you very well know, Judy, I do this quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I have a broad spectrum of people that I can reach out to so that when I don't agree with one, I can go to another and then another. And sometimes I end up falling back on that first person's opinion that I didn't agree with. You know, as a leader, you do have to be open-minded. You are absolutely right with that. But when we word things, so here is what I have seen happening online. Here is what I heard from this hospital you know, we can kind of take the blame off of ourselves as a leader. And again, we're putting those ideas out there for those innovators to take and do the work for us. So it sounds like, oh, Tanya did this. Oh, Tanya did not do that. Tanya just opened the can of worms and let you run with it. And I think as leaders, we really need to motivate those around us because many of us, as a leader, you're a great motivator. You might not have all the right ideas or right answers. But if we can word things appropriately so that people understand that, yes, this might not be the best practice and normal, but right now, how can we make this work for this particular patient? We always say, what's the right line for the right patient at the right time? At this point in time, best practice is per patient, per mm -hmm. staff member. You know, if you have a staff member who has uh, trouble getting fitted for a mask or who has those higher end risk factors, you know, can we rearrange things? Because an anxious nurse or an anxious resident or an anxious physician going into a room is going to make more mistakes if they're more fearful for their own life than somebody who's a little bit more confident. And we can have that other person maybe doing different tasks. So how can we reposition our staff members to keep them as comfortable as possible so that we're losing less staff to death or to intubation and keeping their self-confidence there so that they can function effectively. Thanks. Okay, Ken, let's hear you about leadership, vascular access, and, and how can you, what vascular access and how can we be leaders during this crisis? So uh, more than ever now, I think uh, vascular access is, is, is in the forefront in the sense that the majority of these patients need advanced lines. They all need central lines, arterial lines and things. Um, so being that there's a, you know, a smaller number of, of people willing to take care of these patients, um, I would challenge other teams that have been looking at advancing their scope of practice to maybe speak to their leadership uh, at their facilities and see if, you know, expanding that scope now's a time, you know, where we see limited, you know, availability of people that can place all these types of lines. 
Um, maybe out of this crisis, we'll see, you know, the, you know, uh, vascular access specialists really come to rise because of the need for people that can place all devices. Um, and in, in our facility, we've definitely, uh, you know, kind of garnered some of the respect that I think maybe was lost over, uh, you know, the previous years, or, or maybe just not, maybe not the respect isn't the word, but just maybe some of the, the the vision that, you know, oh, wow, we definitely need you guys here at this time. And they're asking for more coverage and more staff. And uh, it, 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 it's kind of, uh, from that perspective, it's kind of nice to, to see that happening. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, that was my, my next note about, I think, as leaders go, we do. And I want to, I want to speak to your team specifically, Keen. So you're a respiratory therapist in Arizona and you, your team, your facility has been placing all central devices for better than a decade. About Since 2007. Yeah. Right. So as you have RNs and RTs, you can place everything from a PIB to HD or hemodialysis. And that's Correct. the model I think we need to be able to really embrace. I know, Regina, you guys um, increased your scope and you guys are placing A-lines. Connie, you're placing central lines of all sorts as well. And this is the model that as you as a clinician can walk in the room and look at that patient and say, you need this, 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 and this. And in one swoop, so to speak, it might be two hours of a swoop. But you can go place every one of those devices. And the value you have for your organization is immense. So I I have to say I agree with you a hundred percent. So yeah, and also positives, right? Like maybe that'll be one of the positives in the future um that comes out of this too. Again, Keegan, like you said, the value of a vascular access team and hopefully others will um, be able to expand to other devices. Absolutely. And I think just by the the sheer need during this crisis, we've had teams that have done it now, um, possibly a little bit quick with, and, and I don't know, I don't know, but I know I've seen a lot of requests coming. Where can I get training on putting in A-lines or where can I get training for this? And it's, I don't think during a crisis is necessarily the best time to train. But again, I'm not going to be that person that judges another person right now that's on the front line. So um, necessity. So I have one more question for each of you before we let you go today. And I'll just go down the line. I might go through reverse order this time. If you had a crystal ball, how would you have prepared for what you are encountering now, but you can't count PPE? Okay, so Keegan, you're up first this time. Well, I would have asked for more staff a lot earlier. Um, <laughs> that would have... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been my crystal ball um, with uh, five staff trying to cover 24 seven uh, with the, with the greater need. Um, you know, our, our facility too, we still have uh, it's a, a cancer center and then, you know, we have our on the same campus and we covered both. So basically we had to reduce coverage to certain areas so that we could dedicate our time to a certain unit. Um, which to me never looks bad from a leadership, you know, always looks bad from a leadership perspective when you're, when you're pulling away things or you're taking away service lines. Um, so yeah, I definitely want to said, Hey, give me about five more staff. <laughs> Very good. Tanya. I would have done what if training and, and it's been one of the things we've been talking about down the line for future of what else could come by that we're not prepared for. How could we do what if training? Um, and, and, and across the board, where we have now made six ICUs in a, a hospital that only had three, what could we have done ahead of time, prepared the training so we all don't feel like we have no clue what we're supposed to be doing? Very good. Connie? Yeah, I was going to say nurse training as well, but more in the lines of, you know, I think, you know, for this group, we, we're pretty good with, uh, you know, sterile technique, clean technique. But I don't think the majority of nurses know how to DOS properly. Um, I would have liked to seen um, more training in, um, you know, nurse safety, keeping the frontline care workers safe. You know, we have um, pregnant nurses that I can't imagine the fear for them. Um, 
and I, I just think we could have done better on, you know, training when to wear masks, should we wear them in the hospital, in the hallways, um, just, yeah, more what if training, I'd have to agree, um, but, but even specifically to nurses, so they weren't fearful, so we wouldn't have accidental cross-contamination, and so that would be mine. Christy. Uh, I think that I probably agree on just the training part of it um, and the teaching of the doffing of your PPE. I've seen so many people that want to touch me after they've taken their PPE off <laughs> and I'm like, get away. Don't come anywhere near me because it's just, it's scary to think what they're doing when there's not somebody around to say, hey, be mindful of, you know, taking your goggles off because you're touching, you're touching your face while you're doing it or something easy like that. Make it a little lighter. I guess the other thing I would like to have seen in my crystal ball was that I should have probably started going to the gym in January because <laughs> I, you never know until now how much food people bring into the hospital. So I feel like all I'm doing is putting lines in and eating. Good point. I know, I think I have the COVID-15. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and Regina. In your crystal ball, what would you have done? Oh, yeah. First thing, I would like to know, have known what would be my, mo <clears throat> my most important role as manager of this team, keeping in mind that I, I do go bedside. And I can tell you that my daily routine has changed. I am uh, on the um, come in the office and the first thing I try to do is pull out my infection control leader report so that I can know who our patients are, where they are, what room they're in to help try to protect the team to the best of my ability. I also have um, an older team lead. I have to keep that in mind to what room she's in. I had to run it by her. Do you want these options to go in the room or not? I also have a pregnant um, team member. So for me, it would have been can I run through this so that I know how I can best help my team as a leader and as a manager? And then the other thing is, as they have all stated, is to just have some preparation. You don't really get, um, hey, we're going to have a virus that's going to take over the country and here's how we're going to train for it. But we should really sometime think outside the box so that next time if there's ever a situation like this that we can be a little bit more prepared and I know I'm a big data person you guys that know me know that's my deal and I know we can't really keep data during this time but back to Keegan's point about having a team and, and making sure they can do all they can if you can use one or two okay, let me tell you about when we had COVID-19 and why it would be better for this facility for my team to be able to do this, then we are um, advancing as we speak, I think. Good point. Good point. And I agree with each and every one of you. I'm not on the front line right now. So I, I value everything you guys are, are saying and I admire the work you're doing. If does anybody have anything else they'd like to add for our listeners that would be valuable that I wasn't able to ask you? Judy, I just want to add, like, it's more like a, you know, for the general public, you know, my mother-in-law is 96 years old um, and I have not been able to see her just because of the risk um, and we wanted to limit her exposure. And she tells me with her heavy Italian accent that she's afraid. I'm so afraid. And I think that we want to send as healthcare providers, not a message of putting fear into people. We heard good things, hand washing is at higher. Um, you're doing hand washing better. I told her, and I had my husband, you know, translate it. So the message went through is don't be afraid, be smart. And I think that is, we as nurses outside of vascular access, um, it just need to put that message, you know, be, just be safe. Like we're in quarantine. And it's miserable, but we're being safe. And that is just the message that, um, for me, I think we really need to put out instead of all the fear. It's just safety. Wash your hands. You know, keep that distance. I think there's kind of two sides to that, Connie. My dad is on the other side of it. My dad's 90. And he is feeling like he's a 17-year-old indestructible young man. And it's like, Dad, you, you can't go out and do X, Y, Z. You can't do this. He goes, yeah, I'm strong. I have a great immune system and God bless him. He does. But I said, this is a different dog, dad. You, you can't go do that. It's really hard. I finally got him to wear a mask out in public. And though it doesn't do a whole lot, it, it makes me feel better for him. But um, I think that you're right. Be safe, be kind, 
So, Judy, this is Tanya. One of the things that I've seen in my hospital, and I won't say it wasn't there before, but to the level that I'm seeing now is the teamwork that I am seeing and the amount of times that I'm seeing a nurse kind of walk up to another nurse saying, you look exhausted. What can I do for you to help? And Mm. I will say at my hospital, being a smaller hospital, we do this a lot, and we have actually reverted back to team nursing currently. But right before we did that, you know, all these nurses with their first time of wearing so much protection and breathing their own air and sweating their own sweat, the amount of additional teamwork that I have seen across the board, and not just in my hospital, but coworkers and friends of mine that I know that have said, my God, it's so nice to see everybody pitch in. And we are seeing more teamwork, both from the tech side, the secretary side, the physician side, it's across the board as a whole saying, while I'm in there, what else can I do for you? I've heard that as well. Good point. Kudos to everyone think, for that. I think too, one of the, one of the things is we're, as healthcare workers, we're always trying to like rush in uh, to situations to save the day. Um, I think what this has given us time to do is, is pause a second while we're putting on all that PPE. Just remember to take a breath. Take a breath of fresh air before you walk in that room. Make sure that you have everything that you need um, and uh, just kind of slow things down a little bit uh, and and take your time uh, rather than rushing through things. Um, To me, is what I've kind of told my team. And, and, you know, we see a code happen at our hospital and, and before we would all run into that code, well, now we run to the door and have to put all our PPE on. So as, as you're saying with that teamwork, we're actually ha- you know talking through things as we're doing that on. We're checking to make sure that everybody has the right PPE on, uh, having buddies with PPE before we walk in the room. So definitely teamwork, slowing things down and just taking a breath before we dive in. Great points. Each of you are leaders and experts in this field, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. And stay safe out there, continue to be kind, and we'll talk to you next time. Appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you, everyone, so much. That was great. You can see the entire AVA Network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast, or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.